Welcome to Beyond Wall Street, presented by Arixa Capital, where expert investors make their unique investment strategies easy to understand. I'm your host, Jan Bresky, and today I'll be talking with Jeremy Roll of Roll Investment Group. We'll be discussing investing in automated teller machines. Jeremy, it's great to see you. Thank you so much for being uh, part of our interview series today. Jan, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I want to jump right into ATM investing because you've been doing that for a number of years. You're an expert cash flow investor, and our audience is always very interested in things that they can do away from the stock market and away from the bond market especially if it generates cash flow. So can you walk us through um, an ATM investment that you might be making soon or maybe made in the recent past? Give us a sort of a flavor of what it looks like when you invest in ATM machines. Yeah, absolutely. And so, and thanks again for having me on. Just want to stress, I, I've been investing uh, in ATM since 2008. So we're recording this in 2022, so about 14 years. I've now invested across two different operators as a passive investor. I'm always passive in everything I invest in. So I, I definitely came, came in back in 08 as a passive investor. When I first invested in 08, I invested with a smaller operator who has kind of smaller mom and pop locations with ATMs. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the local nail salon, corner liquor store that might be Jerry's liquor store, um, just smaller brands with smaller amounts of traffic and volume. And I eventually then uh, invested with a second operator back, I believe in 2017, who is actually now a top five largest operator in the US. And they have a completely different profile of portfolio, right? They have like, they're in all three of the major airports in New York. They have all the, the rest stops on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. They have all the McDonald's in, the, in the, all the five boroughs of New York, including Manhattan. They're in uh, hundreds of Walgreens. So it's just, and they also even service credit unions and small banks. So it's a whole different profile. And I've been investing more and more with them in the past few years, just based on availability. And I really like their model and their management. And so, you know, I, I've been through ATMs for 14 years. I've been very lucky because I, have pr I haven't calculated it recently, but I've probably averaged about 30% uh, annualized return on investment or cash on cash return per year since 2008. With the larger operator, I'm more in the mid 20s. And, um, you know, when you start compounding those numbers over time, and reinvesting over that many of years, it really starts to add up. Okay, so those are incredible numbers. So let's let's kind of break it down. How much does an ATM machine cost? Sure. Roughly? Yeah, so ATM machines in smaller locations, such as uh, the Jerry's Liquor Store, can go honestly as low as 2,000 to 2,500. Although I don't know with inflation the last couple of years if there's been any major jumps and also supply chain shortages. You got like a mid-range ATM in the five to 7,000 range that can handle a higher volume of transactions. And then you've got, um, well, so you've got those that can also be upgraded into the 12, 10 to $20,000 range. You add cartridges for higher capacity, you add different mechanisms, and the next thing you know, you're in a 10 to $20,000 range. You could put that type of machine, for example, at a very large mall and it can handle it, right? As a standstill in a large indoor closed mall. Just as an example, people can visualize it. Then you have the bank rate ATMs, the ones that are, you know, the other ATMs I mentioned have very high vaulting. You can actually have different levels of vaulting. So protection as far as the vault not getting penetrated, but the bank level ATMs at Bank of America that you might go see in a wall or whatever, those are a whole other level. To be totally honest with you, I'm not familiar with the cost of those because those are not really meant to be retail placement, uh, but those are the highest level uh, of ATMs. Okay. So how does, how does the investment work? Walk us through, if you're putting money into an ATM program, 
Are you owning certain specific machines or co-owning certain a portfolio of machines? Great question. So if you're going to invest with a smaller operator like I have, what, what happened with that is I actually went machine by machine. And it's kind of very inefficient for a larger investor, but it can add up over time. So then you're actually co-investing in single machines at a time, evaluating a single location, and then sending in the funding for one location. And but with the smaller uh, operators, sometimes you'll actually have a structure as an investor where you earn a certain amount of the surcharge or the actual income per transaction. And that is variable, meaning that I'll get a statement each month showing how many transactions there were per machine. And I actually have a login code to go into the one of the top three third-party large processing companies. I can go in and look at all my, all my ATMs real time. It's very transparent, see how they've done. But I get that printout every month as a monthly report. And then I actually get a different amount per month because it's variable. All depends on the actual number of transactions. With some larger operators and like the larger one I'm invested with, that is just way too cumbersome. I mean, they own thousands of ATMs, right? The one I'm invested with owns, I think, upwards of 15,000 ATMs across multiple funds. So what they'll do is you'll invest uh, across a very large diversified portfolio of, of ATMs. Very often it could be 1,500 to 3,000, 4,000 in one uh pool. And that's really awesome diversification because that's typically diversified across not just so many locations, but states as well, right? A lot of these large operators are across many, many states. And, and then you'll actually end up more typically in a fixed structure where because they're raising tens of millions of dollars into those funds, they're not going to go and figure out the transaction per person. You know, there could be hundreds of people in the fund. And so you'll have a fixed return where they're going to leave themselves a certain margin for profit and uh, padding. Um, and they'll have a targeted fixed return model with that model. So it really varies depending on the type of operator you're investing with. Okay, so you could invest something like um, $100,000 into a portfolio of, of ATM machines, and you're saying you might get $20,000 a year of income from that or more. Yes, exactly. Now, the tricky part about ATMs compared to real estate investments, because I do a lot of real estate investing myself, and I'm gathering a lot of your listeners and maybe real estate investors, is that unlike real estate, where you expect to get a very large payment at the end, what would hopefully be at least your initial capital invested, possibly with a profit of an exit of a property over a certain number of years, ATMs, they're computers. They're literally just a screen and a bill feeder and a keyboard and a CPU, and it's going to depreciate to almost zero. Right. So the larger operator I'm with projects a 5% residual value at the end of the term, which is a seven year term, right? Projected term. And so the important thing to understand is that cash flow really has to be higher than a more traditional type of alternative investment because you're getting what I call a fully amortized payment, meaning a combination of a quote unquote principal and interest, if you're looking at it that way, um, so that you're recouping your capital and some profit at the same time each month. Oh, so, okay. So, um, at the end, instead of getting your original investment back, you get a very small amount of your original investment back, but you've gotten enough cash flow over time what, that you ended up coming out ahead. So, so have you figured out the equivalent return that if you're getting a mid-20s kind of cash flow, right? Um, yes. but you're losing, let's say, 10 to 12% or 14% a year of your principal, essentially, Yes. What what does it work out to as an actual return? Yeah. So the, I think what I the way I've handled it is just doing an IRR comparison, right? So the IRR is projected to be in the 19s, like 19.6% for the fund I just recently invested in, and that to me is the best comparable when you're comparing it against other alternatives, even outside of ATMs. So that's still very good. I mean, compared to anything else, especially with a lot of current cash flow, 
certainly it's very high compared to real estate lending, right? Yeah, it is. Um, I think you have to also take into account the fact that you're not necessarily collateralized against a, a hard asset, right? And now with the larger operator, it happens to be that their fund structure is you're collateralized against the contracts associated with those ATMs. And those contracts are arguably much more valuable than the actual ATMs themselves, even at the beginning of the term, let alone at the end where they're depreciated. We don't necessarily need to get all that complication. So there is collateral, but you know, it's not, you're not investing in a hard asset necessarily. So for example, if they have a contract to put ATMs in a mall or an airport, then you getting that contract as part of the collateral for that machine for, yes. that, for that investment. Yes, so the fund is collateralized by all the contracts. If there were to be some type of major challenge, the contracts are, are on average, depending on each contract and the length of term remaining, but on average worth significantly more than the ATM. So the collateral coverage is really good throughout the term of the fund, but it's still not a collateralized against a hard asset like real estate. Okay, so let's summarize what you've covered so far. So our audience is interested in investments that generate cash flow. They're interested in investments that are away from the stock market because of the whims of, of the stock market and the bond market. And, and you're, t you're saying you've been investing for 14 years in ATMs, different structures of ATMs that are generating something close to a 20% annualized return. That's just amazing return compared to almost anything else that, that typical investors or even high net worth investors would have available. Why do you think that this has remained such a lucrative investment and how has it avoided being sort of uh, ground down to, you know, to typical returns that you would expect for something that's available to investors like you or m myself? Yeah, I think there's three reasons that are coming to mind off the top of my head. Um, the first is when I started investing in ATMs in 2008, I had a lot of people warning me that ATMs were done and debted over, you know, the technologies were taking over, people are going to transfer money digitally. And they were thought I was crazy. And in fact, I had a relative, a true story, relative of mine in Canada, I'm from Montreal originally, sold one of the largest portfolios of ATM in the US to a public company in 2009. And when he heard I was getting ATMs at that point, he, he was like, he's gone and I'm going in. And, he, and he's been in the industry for a long time. So I think people have been scared about a decline in the use of cash for a very long time. And I think that does create um, some uh, opportunity where demand has kind of gone down over time from investors to an extent. So that's number one. Number two is um, I think that um, the concept that, you know, it's not as bankable or lendable as a hard asset, right? Because these, these computers depreciate to zero. So if you ever tried to lease computer equipment before or web hosting equipment or what, I've been involved in that myself in the past, they're very high lease rates, especially for smaller companies. And it's just because the machines, machines are depreciating very quickly, right? And these, whoever takes over the contracts don't necessarily want location contracts. So then, you know, how easy it would be for them to sell them, et cetera. So long story short is I think that it's just not as appealing for some of the large capital sources to go into. I'm not saying for everybody, there have been a lar large funds involved in this, but I think that it's also not quite as appealing as far as capital sources compared to some hard assets. You know, the, the third one is, you know, the, the constant concern of uh, what's coming up with the use of cash going forward, which is not necessarily just a technology, but now as we stand today, for example, central bank digital currency may be poised to actually have cash being used less. So it's not just a typical decline because of Venmo, et cetera. There's other possibilities as well. I think another thing, by the way, that's very important to note is that, you know, I don't know about you, Jan, but like I never pay a surcharge at an ATM, right? I use my Bank of America. I have an account that lets me go to any machine and I don't pay the surcharge. 
But the vast majority of the transactions with this larger company are not directed towards you and I. And it's very hard for us to relate to the usage of these, right? They're, they're directed towards users of EBT cards, which are the, the uh, food stamp cards. They're directed towards the underbanked and the non-banked, which make up about 18% last I saw on the stats of the US population. And you and I cannot relate to not having a bank account, for example, and having to use an ATM in, in that respect. That's also been very hard, I think, for some investors to wrap their brains around and to really get past all these other challenges, which also takes away a lot of the demand on the investor side. What I'm hearing is that this is a real contrarian investment in a few different ways. It's, it's contrarian in that people are worried cash is going to go away, but it may not be going away as fast as, as some of the um, futurists think it is. And also... There's probably a significant segment of investors who are uncomfortable making big returns from, you know, from from people that not be banked or maybe outside of the traditional financial system. And if you are okay with those things, you you can generate some significant returns and cash flow. That actually is a great explanation of why there is good cash flow available in this investment. Can I just That's, add one more thing? It's yeah, of course. From my perspective, investor, the reason why I've still been investing, and in fact, I'm about to rent, just coincidentally, I'm about to invest in another tranche of this fund this month, is the way that I look at it for myself is um, if I can at least see clarity to get my capital returned, then I'm still in the game. And meaning that even though this fund has a seven-year term, as an example, um, you have a projected payback of about four years based off that mid-20s projected cash-on-cash cash return. But if you add in bonus depreciation, which exists in this 100% uh, in year one, and you're able to take advantage of that depreciation in your taxes, then the return actually, the, the break-even time goes down from four years to three years. So the way I've been looking at it is if, if I believe that I have a high probability of getting my capital back within three years based off of all these other threats and these other possible challenges, then I'm still going to continue. Once that gets to a foggy timeline to me, at least in that amount, that's where I'm probably going to stop. And I don't know when that's going to be. So, Jeremy, I've known you for uh, some time and I know you've always been very focused on cash flow investing. And you were mentioning before um, we started the interview how you sold your public market stocks and bonds and, and transferred your investments into the private markets several years ago. Can you walk us through how you came to this point and uh, why did you make that decision that you wanted to avoid the stock and bond market and, and get into all these niche investments? In the yeah, market? good question. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, you know, this goes back all the way to the dot-com crash now. So I'm a pretty low risk, low and steady guy. I'm, I'm not a huge risk taker, just my mentality. And back after the dot-com crash, I was sick and tired of the lack of predictability and the volatility of the stock market. It was just, I felt like it was the wrong fit for me from a long-term investment perspective for my retirement account. I was really frustrated that I wasn't able just, because I'm a big numbers guy, just map out 30, 40 years, where is this going to go after watching that tremendous volatility in the stock market? So I started to look for different ways to invest, came across the concept of, of alternative investments for cash flow. And I started with real estate and eventually went into many different things. And I'm currently in over 60 different opportunities, for example. And what happened with me is that I rotated my money from stocks and bonds between 2002 and 2007 into these alternative investments. And I've basically been all in since then. And mid-07, I had a lost draw moment with my manager. I was actually working at Toyota headquarters at the time here in LA. And I decided to leave because I had enough cash flow built up to live off of, which ironically was not my goal. My goal was to get that predictable retirement piece going on this side and have the W-2, but I took the risk, left the corporate world. And so I've been a full-time passive cash flow investor, so to speak, for 15 years since 07 right now, but I've been investing in these things since 02. Terrific. And for people that are interested in following in your in your footsteps and, and becoming active in these private niche markets, uh, which is our typical 
viewer for this series is is looking to explore that what what would be your advice to them as they're getting into private markets and alternative investments for the first time what have you learned over the years and what advice would you give to the to our audience yeah number one is these types of investments are subject to timing and what i mean by that is i come i actually speak to a lot of new people all the time who are looking at these types of investments and sometimes what i find is that somebody will say look i want to deploy X amount of dollars into this starting this year, next year, this year, because I want to get down a path of getting out of the corporate world, for example, after X number of years. And it's a formula and it's great because I've seen that happen many, many times. But what I think sometimes people don't consider is, okay, well, that timing works for you, but does the market agree with you? Right. In other words, is, is this the right time for you to start? But, you know, this year in particular with interest rates potentially going up, quantitative easing coming to and all these other things, or is this the right time possibly to learn a lot? and wait and see when the right timing might be. So please take timing into account. Uh, very quick example, you can invest in the best asset uh, on Rodeo Drive uh, here in, in Beverly Hills that's fully occupied in 2007. You could have been foreclosed in 2010, or you could invest in the worst asset in 2010 in the middle of nowhere and make a boatload of money by 2017 on that property. And that's purely timing. So just keep in mind timing is really critical uh, with all this stuff. The other thing I'd recommend is I would recommend starting with one particular type of opportunity. So let's just take real estate. Um, a lot of people start with apartments for a couple of reasons. One is they've lived in an apartment, they can understand the business model, they've been a client, they kind of can really wrap their head around it very easily. And number two is that there happens to be a lot of apartments in the US, so it's hard, it's easier to find those types of opportunities than, for example, mobile home parks, right? There just aren't as many. So start with one, learn it as well as you can, dip your toe in with that one asset, and then you could you'd be surprised to know that in real estate, as an example, you can transfer, in my opinion, probably at least 80% of your learning to almost any other real estate asset class because it applies to all of them. And then you have to tweak it based on that asset class to understand the next one. But focus on one first. Don't get too scattered because it's really easy to get scattered. There's a lot out there. And I find that if you could focus on one first, get to know it. And, but take your time to learn it before you just dip your toe and don't do it blindly because you want to make sure you understand what the projected returns are. Are they fair? Is it an aggressive business plan? Are the assumptions conservative or aggressive? Who are you making a bet on based on those assumptions? A lot to consider when you're investing passively. Okay, very good. So while we've got you, and since you are sort of a template of, of the viewer for this program, I, I think, it, but you got started years ago doing this, is there any book that you would recommend to people that, that are interested in learning more about getting into alternative and private investments and cash flow investments like this? Yeah, so the, there's two to come to mind. Maybe a lot of people have already read these, but I'd strongly recommend reading Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and also read Robert Kiyosaki, Cashflow Quadrant. And I'd strongly recommend reading those in, in that order. There's a little repetition between the two books, but I think it's a, it's a lot of very good information in the second one that isn't in the first. And I think it's really changed the lives about a lot of people as far as their mentality on cash flow, how they view passive versus active income and all these other things. I think it'd be very good to, to read those too. And the second one is called Cash Flow Quadrant? Yes, cash, cash Flow Quadrant, which not as many people have heard of, I strongly recommend. Great. And um, just one more question for today. You mentioned digital currency earlier on, and I think that that's a topic that many of us are trying to figure out. What is cryptocurrency? What is uh, decentralized finance? Is it for real? Is it a scam? And uh, I'd like to get your thoughts on that. From your perspective, how are you looking at blockchain, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, and, and everything that's happening in that world right now? 
Sure. Now, look, I should have mentioned at the beginning, I'm not a financial advisor. So just in my perspective as an investor, all this stuff, right? But I'm going to separate it into two pieces. Uh, we were talking about the central bank digital currency before. I 100% believe that's going to happen for a myriad of reasons. They're already getting comments on a white paper, the Fed, Federal Reserve is. Um, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I think it's going to happen soon. I think it's going to take years to roll out because it's going to impact the world, not just the U.S. Uh, potentially. And that one, I believe, is real. And I even think that the U.S. government is possibly going to consider stablecoin like a dollar-related uh, coin, but that they're going to actually manage themselves to take away some of the risk that some of these other stablecoins aren't for real or backed by what they say they back by. Now, the other side of things is actually cryptocurrency for everybody else that we're talking about, not the government. Look, I'm not a speculator, meaning I don't typically make a bet that a price is going to go higher. I, I look for cash flow. So to me, speculating is increase in asset price, cash flow is investing, right? So speculating versus investing. But I also like to be as diversified as possible. So what I haven't done really is bought Bitcoin. I traded it a tiny amount last year, a couple of transactions. What I did do though, to get exposure to Bitcoin, even though I'm not quite sure where it's going, and frankly, I'm not that convinced it's going higher necessarily, is I invested in some Bitcoin mining. Uh, I'm in a Bitcoin mining fund, uh, another Wharton grad that I know, uh, or alum that I know. He... Uh, like a lot of these public companies and larger funds can end up minting a coin for like a $6,000 break-even cost. So you can invest at a timing when Bitcoin's at 40,000 and if Bitcoin goes to 20,000, you've lost half your money if you bought Bitcoin, but you actually are making money if you're in these types of funds. So to me, it was a way to mitigate the downside risk, get exposure to the asset class, but not get the full upside because you're splitting upside with the sponsor, right? So I'm a, a low risk guy. I want to get exposure. I don't fully believe, but I need to be diversified. That's my solution. Now, in full disclosure, I am in one kind of high-risk DeFi trading fund by a Wharton grad that I know. Um, not doing very well, but I wanted to just make sure I didn't, you know, diversification. Um, I'm in a, actually blockchain-related infrastructure fund, uh, or sorry, startup that is I, someone I just had to make a bet on. Who's one of the probably the largest infrastructure backend service provider for the crypto exchanges and for some of the crowdfunding sites. I just had to make a bet on him because of his expertise. Otherwise, I tend to stay away from most of this. I will say this. I tell people, you know, had you know it was a top in 2005, six, seven, you know, you'd hop into your taxi cab and the taxi cab driver would tell you they're flipping houses, right? How do you know it's top right now? You hop into your Uber in 2020 and 21 and the driver is telling you they're trading cryptocurrency and making a ton of money. So we'll see if I'm right or not, but I am concerned that that might be the case. Makes sense. All right, Jeremy, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for your expertise. And I think our audience is going to get a lot out of uh, this interview. Thank you. Yeah, thanks again for having me on. I just hope this was helpful for your listeners. I'm Jan Bresky, and you've been listening to Beyond Wall Street. <laughs>